0: MSW Media.
1: What should we make of the Justice Department's unusual decision to try to dismiss the charges against Michael Flynn? And what is this Obamagate stuff that Trump keeps talking about? Let's get on topic. Welcome to On Topic, a weekly in-depth look at a topic that helps us understand the week's news. My name's Renato Mariotti. I'm a former federal prosecutor, a practicing lawyer, and a legal analyst. And I'm joined by my friend Patty Vasquez, the host of The Patty Vasquez Show, who joins us regularly on this podcast now, before I uh, thank our patrons, I do want to note, I did not mention the word CNN in the intro, and that's because my, my contract with CNN is up. Uh, so a number of you uh, noticed and reached out to me that you saw me on MSNBC this week, and I suspect I'll end up being on MSNBC more in the weeks to come, uh, but for right now, uh, I'll still be doing the same thing I'm doing, but I'm just doing it on multiple networks. But be, so before I get to our episode and our discussion with Patty, let me thank our patrons who brought us this episode. With special thanks to Michelle Dew, Eric DeWurst, James Fromier, Jay Gelhausen, Jamie Gordon, Steve Hungsberg, Shana Wachinski, and an anonymous patron. You too can become a patron on our website, ontopicpodcast.com. Just click the support link at the top of the page. Well, Patty, uh, it has been quite a week. It, you know, I have to say, for a period of time, it really looked like uh, the legal issues surrounding Trump were go- were taking a backstage um, to coronavirus and COVID nineteen and this entire uh, pandemic. And now suddenly, people are talking once again about the assault on the rule of law. And now Trump has sort of cooked up his own uh his own conspiracy theory to try to distract the media from uh his own failings in, in terms of dealing with the pandemic.
0: Yeah, he really found an interesting way to spend Mother's Day, didn't he? <laughs> you know, no heart no heartfelt messages. Uh you know, it could have been 156 tweets about mothers and celebrating families, but no. It was sheer madness on Sunday.
1: Without a doubt, without a doubt, uh you know, Trump is uh, on the war path, and I, I will say this: I mean, I think he is, uh, be, you know, very effective at dominating the news cycle, distracting our attention away from what matters. You know, and there's no question that his response to the pandemic has been poor, and I think that is reflected in the poll numbers. And so now he keeps saying "Obamagate," "Obamagate," and it's really sort of a na- a catchy name, in search of an actual scandal. I mean, there's no, you know, when he was asked what. Crime is he accusing President Obama of committing? Uh, Trump couldn't come up with one, and he really, I don't think, has any idea of any actual crime or wrongdoing here. It's just sort of a vague innuendo, uh, but it's enough to, I think, have gotten his face pretty riled up.
0: Well, and and looking back now, I mean, I, and I'm not sure what, how you feel about it, but it, it seemed like he was starting to find ways to point fingers at Obama. Like he wanted to make Obama in some ways negative, and perhaps it's because Joe Biden is now the candidate, and obviously uh, Obama will be campaigning with him, trying to undermine their, you know, that incredible amount of popularity he has. By first saying it was his fault that they didn't leave him a plan book for the pa- a pandemic, which of course that was proven to be false, uh, that it was, you know, so many things that were his fault, and then ultimately on Sunday, just uh, a, a spiraling before our very eyes on Twitter.
1: Yeah, I think you know whatever different attacks he's made on Biden really haven't stuck. Um, You know, I don't. You know, he keeps calling him sleepy Joe Biden. I'm not sure people are uh, more most worried about having a president who's sleepy or not uh, hyper. Uh, aggressive at this point in time, I think they'd be happy right. to have a president who isn't tweeting a hundred times a day.
0: We'd rather have a president that leads. You know, we need a national plan. Well, we needed one back in January, February, March, last week, but we're not going to have that. Yeah, for this pandemic.
1: Right I think that's right. And you know, Biden doesn't have, in terms of legal problems, he doesn't have the sort of issue that you know Hillary Clinton's the the email issue that it was a, that was raised during the last campaign was very much blown out of proportion. It was something that I think as James Comey said at the time, no prosecutor would have prosecuted because there really had never been a prosecution in a case like that before, but it it generated a ton of media attention. Uh now I think, you know, Trump sees a void here. He needs some sort of legal problem to play out and you know what I I I will say is he's essentially found a way to manufacture one. Um the the Republicans seem to be marching along with this, uh Lindsey Graham said he's having a bunch of hearings and it really it appears to be that what's happened is because of this Michael Flynn story that is unfolded which we're going to be talking about in detail today with our guests, Um you know what they have essentially tried I think hinted at but they don't allege because there's nothing I think there's no meat to it, there's nothing there that the the origins of the Russia investigation were false that Michael Flynn was set up, and that this is all a, a grand conspiracy by Barack Obama. I mean, that's that's essentially, uh, as far as I can tell, what the allegations are. Uh, there's really no evidence to suggest those things, um, but it is definitely, I think, a good distraction, distracting tactic. It certainly managed to change the conversation uh, for for at least the short term. Oh, no doubt. All right, well, let's bring in our guest. Uh, Ken White is a former federal prosecutor. He also uh, is a uh, practitioner who rec- regularly represents uh, individuals who are accused of crimes, and he's a regular contributor to The Atlantic. But you probably know him best as Popat. Uh, he is uh, a blogger and also a tweeter under that name, and he's a frequent commentator. and I And I will just say to all of you, the reason I'm Bringing him on is I think he provides a very interesting and balanced perspective on this issue of the Michael Flynn case. I know a lot of you have questions. We've got an insane number of questions and comments and inquiries, um, which we're, which Patty's going to do her best to bring to our attention today. But I think Ken is somebody who, um, can help us kind of have a balanced perspective as somebody who's been on both sides of the issue, just as I have, both as a federal prosecutor and now as a practicing lawyer. Welcome back to the podcast, Ken. Thanks for joining us.
2: Well, thank you for having me again.
1: So, you know, Ken, I have to say, um, this has been uh, really a set of shocking developments. I-, I was very surprised, to put it mildly, uh, to read the government's motion, uh, the DOJ's motion to dismiss the uh, the charges against Flynn. You know, you had remarked, I think, on Twitter that it read like a bad defense brief And I think that's about right. I mean, it it reads like a lot of the things that you or I might write on behalf of clients that are routinely opposed by the DOJ and rejected by courts. And then, of course, we had this even more shocking development uh, yesterday in terms of the appointment of an amicus. I'm curious, what was your reaction to that DOJ motion?
2: Well, I I thought it was um, quite shocking. It was like uh, defense lawyers Hail Mary Pass. Uh, It was a collection of quibbles and complaints about the way the FBI conducts interviews, um, about what materiality is or isn't, Um, a a series of arguments that have been repeatedly and roundly rejected um, by every court to consider them. And it's routinely, as you said, opposed by the Justice Department. So uh, to me, it was just so transparently in bad faith uh, for the Justice Department to be making arguments that it so routinely opposes and rejects.
1: Yeah, I think it'll be helpful for us to give the listeners some context here. OK, so, you know, I was a prosecutor for almost a decade. I know you were a prosecutor for many years, federal prosecutor in uh, in uh, the Central District of California, which is the, uh, the, the district that includes L.A. I was a prosecutor in the district that includes Chicago. Both of our districts, you know, prosecuted people for, uh, uh, violating this, the, the 1001, the statute, the 18 USC 1001, which is lying to the FBI. And now we've represented people on the other side. And I, and I have to say, you know, these charges, um, have, I'd say, uh, a, a set of case law that I think a lot of average people would regard as unfair. In other words, You know, the FBI is allowed to lie to people. They're allowed to trick people in the course of an interview. Um, I've had clients lied to and and I've had the jury instructed that the FBI lied to to the defendant. And that's uh, that's okay. That's permitted in the law. And yet, nonetheless, they can be prosecuted. The defendant can be prosecuted uh, for uh, for, you know, making false statements to the FBI. Uh, even in circumstances in which it, it it looked like the only purpose of the interview was potentially to get them to lie.
2: Yes, it's true. Uh, you know, a lot of people use the term perjury trap. and it, it has a specific legal meaning. There is such a thing if it's a perjury trap, and it's when they call you to the grand jury just to get you to perjure yourself so they can prosecute you. But I think people have a, a sort of a sense of justice about it that colloquially – it's a perjury tap for the agents to know a fact 100% and go after you to ask you questions about it, hoping that you'll lie so that uh, they can then charge you, even if the lie didn't slow them down or confuse them or deter them for a second. That really seems like manufacturing a crime out of human foibles.
1: Yeah, I think that a lot of people find that surprising. Uh, But in fact, I mean, I will say in my In my uh, in my uh, former office, we prosecuted Rod Blagojevich, who was the governor, for making false statements to the FBI agents. He was convicted. Dennis Hastert, the former Speaker of the House, you know those questions that they were asked were not a surprise. Uh, The answers were not a surprise to the FBI because you know, for example, in the case of Dennis Hastert, you know he was asked about why he was making withdrawals from a bank account, and uh, the withdrawals were to pay off an accuser who had accused him of 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 uh, molesting him when he was underage. And the FBI knew that. But, you know, those questions, they I'm sure that I assume I don't have any special knowledge about that particular case. I wasn't involved in it, but it was apparent that the FBI knew that that there was a good chance Hastert was going to lie and he was prosecuted for lying. And, uh, you know, this happens in other cases. And so I think. You know, everyone should understand that from Michael Flynn, from the, from my perspective, and I would be interested if you disagree. Uh, from my perspective, if I can the, the Flynn case is not even a, a, an outlier. I mean, it's not a it's not one of these crazy outside the box cases. This is to me much more straight down the middle than a lot of other 1001 cases that have been prosecuted.
2: Oh, it's, it's very routine, mundane. Uh, you know, they, they knew some facts. They had irrefutable proof. They went in thinking either we'll get him to admit this or he'll lie, and then we'll have that in our quiver as a potential felony charge. And, you know, either way, we win. And that's the way they do it all the time. And then they use that 1001 charge to leverage other things. So it it changes the defense's calculation about whether or not to fight more substantive charges, more serious charges. Because if you figure, you know, I I might beat the big charge, I might beat the Foreign Agent Registration Act charge, but I'm dead on this 1001 charge, so I'm going to get convicted of a felony no matter what, all of a sudden you're much more likely to plead guilty because there's not much point in doing anything else.
1: Yeah, I have seen – uh, you know, I have seen both when I was a federal prosecutor and on the other side, very aggressive use of this statute, um, sometimes, of course, in circumstances that I think many people would applaud. I think a lot of people applauded the Dennis Haster prosecution, even though uh, his, his uh, molestation and abuse of underage uh, uh, men was not a federal crime and was passed the statute of limitations. That was nonetheless, I think, very widely praised. But there are other circumstances in which I think, you know, the defendants, you know, believe and they have good reasons to believe that their, that their, the treatment has not always been fair. But nonetheless, this is the standard. And so, you know, you know, to give some color on, on some of the unusual, um, positions taken by the government, I, I remember, I noticed that you had mentioned, Ken, you had pointed to where they were talking about having a lawyer present. Uh, where they were uh, talking about whether or not a, a warning was issued. Uh, can, can you g- give us some context about uh, about those things?
2: Yes. I mean, the, the FBI is exquisitely trained in doing interviews. They're really quite good at it. And uh, there are elements of that training that are designed to get people to say things against their better judgment um there are also elements that arguably are uh, make it easier for the fbi to shade the truth about what happened for instance they don't record these interviews it's a policy not to record them which in my mind is highly questionable but they absolutely want to convince you against your interests that you don't need to talk to a lawyer uh that you can talk to them now and not think about it for a while that they're on their uh, they're on your side you know every Sort of transparently cheesy trick you see in a cop show in t v or a Columbo <laughs> rerun uh, they they use uh extremely skillfully, so when the brief said all these things uh, about how you know, in deciding this wasn't a just prosecution, we saw that, you know, they discouraged him from getting a lawyer and they contrived to talk to him outside of normal channels so he wouldn't have that protection. I mean, like, of course they did. That's what they do. That's the way they conduct these interviews so that they can get people to say things that are against their interests. And for the Department of Justice to pretend for a moment that, They actually disapprove of those things, Uh, that that's actually something unjust, to me, is incredibly dishonest because they've never said it before and they're never going to say it again. This is a one-time deal that this bothers their conscience, and it's because it was done to a political crony. Uh, Mm -hmm. And they're going to go right back to doing it. And, you know, you and I are going to quote this thing in motions to suppress statements and in sentencing briefs. And uh, everyone's going to know that it's for show, that, you know, the fix was in and they didn't really mean that. And that's why it's not going to have any persuasive power.
1: Yeah, I think that's right. It it reminds me of where there's these tweets that Trump, where Trump says all sorts of things that the court's now there's all these cases out there that say, ah, oh, the president doesn't mean what he says, or we can't trust anything. He said it doesn't mean anything. It doesn't bind the government. I think this is sort of a one-off case, uh, in which, you know, there have been other people put into prison, uh, very similar circumstances, but this guy gets a special deal. And the Justice Department, I, I imagine, is going to pretend like this didn't happen because I, I have literally sat in the courtroom as, um, you know, defendants were uh, testifying and complaining about how they were tricked. You know, they thought that this was, uh, you know, I, I remember one one deputy U.S. Marshal who was convicted of crimes, who was convinced that he had a special project and he needed to come into this room and suddenly all of his co-workers, but also FBI agents were questioning him about activities. And they later prosecuted him. And you know they he thought that was unfair, but the law didn't. the judge didn't, and he's he's in prison, so definitely, I think it's very hard for me to escape the conclusion here, Ken, that this is one system of justice for the president's friends and another system of justice for everybody else
2: and It's true, and I think it would have been in some ways. Um, less harmful to the interests of justice substantially for Trump to simply have pardoned him. I mean, that's clearly within Trump's power. We might not like it politically, but to do this very much perverts uh, the um, perverts the course of justice. And that's, that's upsetting to me.
1: Yeah, I think one thing that's been interesting too, Ken, is to see the reaction from people on the right from this. And what is interesting is, first of all, I think we're seeing a lot of people saying, you know, condemning practices that we know are, are widespread and have been defended by the Justice Department saying, well, this can't be how the system works. Or, you know, I remember Kim Strassel was saying if if this is how, thing, you know, people prosecutors are saying this or people are saying this is routine. But if it's just routine, this is really problematic. But I don't think any of us really believe that these people are interested in reforming the system in a way that helps uh, other types of defendants, right?
2: Oh, uh, absolutely not. Absolutely not. Uh, that's not going to happen. Um, it's the same with you know all the talk about FISA and the FISA warrants that started off some of this story. Uh, there's big talk about we got to stop this happening to Americans, and you know, uh, and you know, recently all the FISA gets reauthorized, and the proposed amendments to narrow it or uh, prevent abuses are uh, are refused, rejected.
1: Yeah, I think that's right, and. You know, it's interesting when you look at this at this motion. I mean, ultimately, what the do? It's interesting what the DOJ is saying here. They don't admit or say that they engaged in any misconduct. There's no allegation. There's no statement here that that the, the DOJ did anything wrong. They're not saying that the defendant is actually innocent. In other words, he didn't lie, which would be very hard because, of course, he he said under oath multiple times. To this judge that he did lie, so to the FBI, so I don't think that they would be able to say that. So essentially, you know, there's, there's a, they're saying, they're ultimately saying that it's not in the interest of justice to pursue this prosecution. And really, it, you know, usually a judge would defer to the DOJ's mercy in a case, uh, like this, or just use of its discretion, especially since the defendant doesn't oppose it. And here, of course, there's been a different posture by the judge. Uh, and I'm curious what your reaction is to that.
2: You know, I, I, I think it's a, a real conundrum for the judge. On the one hand, you, you have a separation of powers issue. It should clearly be the executive that's making the decision about uh, whom to prosecute and how to proceed with that prosecution within the rules and generally whether to drop uh, a prosecution. And uh, the U.S. attorney's offices have always very jealously guarded that. And I'm sure, uh, Renata, you, like uh, I did once in a while, encountered a federal judge who thought that they should be able to tell us how things should be prosecuted. Mm -hmm. And uh, it was very much our job to push back. Um, On the other hand, I mean, the the federal rules do give the judge the right to uh, deny or grant this motion to dismiss. And. When things have happened in front of that judge it 's within uh, their inherent authority to investigate whether anyone has perjured themselves, whether anyone has committed misconduct, and when uh you know you 've got um, a justice department filing a historically unusual not to say freakish Document that's nothing like this judge has ever seen dramatically changing uh, their position and prosecutors who are associated with the case are dropping out, then um, I can see the judge deciding that he wants to make this decision fully informed. And he feels that He's not being fully informed that he's got the defense side and then he's got the friends of the defense side mm-hmm. and, and the, with the government. And he wants somebody to, in effect, speak the side of the prosecutors who indicted the case and who negotiated the plea agreement.
1: Well, you know that I, I can see the wisdom in that as well. I mean, for instance, there has been some uproar because Ju- Judge Gleason, who I had appeared for before when I was a young lawyer, I thought he was very capable, able uh, judge, who happened to have also been a, a federal prosecutor for many years in Brooklyn, he had—I think—he had secured the Gotti, uh, the Gotti uh, uh, conviction, which is a very celebrated case. And um, you know, they had made there's been a lot made by the on the right from the fact that he's penned an op-ed explaining that he thinks the flip, you know, this is problematic with what with, with the Justice Department is doing. And I guess that doesn't bother me so much because. The purpose here is for him to present the other side ultimately it's the judge's decision.
2: Right. I mean, because the judge, uh, we don't have an inquisitorial system, right? Like uh, in some countries where the judge conducts their own inquisition into the facts. We have a system where the facts are supposed to be presented uh, by advocates. But if the judge thinks that one advocate is basically deliberately taking a dive then you could see why the judge, before making the decision, would like to have in uh, some substitute (laughs) to give that sort of thing. And I think the judge probably correctly feels that the factual recitation in the government's motion is not accurate. And by all accounts, it really isn't. It misrepresents some of the things that happened. It misinterprets the words of uh, some of the people quoted who have come out and said so. And I don't think it's unreasonable for the judge to want to make the decision based on facts that have not been misrepresented by the
1: Department of Justice. Yeah, I have to say it's astounding to me. I mean, when I was in the Justice Department, there was a very high premium spent on being very accurate to judges because the DOJ is very much a repeat player in front of those judges. If you're at a U.S. attorney's office in a particular district, you're going to see those same federal judges over and over and over again. And the reputation of the office, I was always taught, was more than any individual person. So accuracy was hyper important. And here we have uh, the Justice Department quoting Mary McCord, former DOJ official, and she wrote an op-ed in The Washington Post saying, I was, my words were misrepresented. I thought that was astonishing.
2: Yeah, and I I think that is probably part of what is really vexing the judge. Um, He's shown very strong feelings about this case in the past, of course. Um, He he, uh, read Flynn, the riot act, when he was previously just flirting with withdrawing his plea instead of doing it. He uh, very publicly forced him into... uh, Renewing his vows, as it were, um, he he said that uh, he was asking why Flynn wasn't charged with treason. Which I actually thought was a little over the line as a judicial comment, uh, particularly since it's nothing like treason, and you know Correct. we, totally we both know that tre- yeah. tre- 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 treason has a very specific constitutionally defined meaning. People misuse it all the time; it uh, irritates you and me. Uh, <laughs> and that was that was a, that was a uh, judge being intemperate moment. Uh, but so this is just the type of judge who, if he hears that the Justice Department has fed him a line that is misleading, is going to want to inquire into it. And, uh, you know, I've, I've seen that happen, not on this scale, not uh, with this level of, you know, uh, cinematic excitement, but I, I have seen judges when they feel they have been lied to uh, take the bit in their mouth and run with it to find out what happened.
1: Yeah. I have also seen in, in situations where the government yeah, there's an administration change and the government is no longer defending a, a particular position in a suit. I've seen courts appoint uh, lawyers to represent the prior position if there's, you know, some reason to do so. I've seen that happen. And I actually, I mean, I remember in other contexts, of course, sp- special master being appointed. I was a research assistant to the special master in the Microsoft antitrust case back when I was in law school. So, it certainly happens. There's been a lot of uproar on the right, uh, basically saying we don't want amicus briefs. We don't want this um, this particular amicus. What, what do you make of that?
2: Well, I I, I think it's fifty percent not wanting to see what comes out of it. And 50 percent just pushing the narrative forward uh, that, you know, we, we've we got to criticize the amicus briefs because we've got to push the narrative. That this is a deep state judge. And, uh, you know, Trump is being abused and Flynn is being abused and blah, blah, blah. Where in reality, I mean, if what you're doing is getting more facts on the record, that should be a good thing. Um, if it's testing what the United States is saying um, to this judge. I think the the real thing where it becomes a problem is what the judge does on the ruling. Um, and I, I think, frankly, that, I mean, there's some people have been arguing that the judge doesn't actually have the ability to deny the motion to dismiss. Uh, I don't think that's right. I think that at best there's a, a cloudy legal argument In that direction. But I do think it would be very problematical in terms of separation of powers for the judge to deny the motion. But what the judge may want to do is uh, grant it without prejudice and to do so with some sort of critique of how they got there that lays out the issues and makes it clear that he is not doing it because he has been fooled by what amounts to a very dishonest uh, Department of Justice brief.
1: Yeah, I think that that's a very likely outcome. And so what this means is, and I would say likely outcome, but it appears like a very plausible outcome here. I say I don't know if it's I don't want to predict what the judge is going to do because who knows what's going on in his head, but it sure seems to me like what we're we're looking at here is potentially Judge Sullivan Laying out, you know, asking very tough questions of the DOJ, which they're not going to be very well prepared to answer. Okay. I think some of the questions I, I could ask, I could craft a whole number of questions for the DOJ that they would be very uncomfortable answering. And I'm sure he will, you know, ask some of those potentially. And then at the end, you know, giving his thoughts on it, but nonetheless granting the motion. But as you said, if he grants it without prejudice, that means that a future administration could reinstate the charges. Uh, and potentially mean that if Trump wants to ensure that Flynn gets off, that he's going to have to pardon?
2: Sure. I mean, an example of what we could see, I think, is a little bit like what uh, Judge Amy Berman Jackson, or uh, long-suffering Judge Amy Berman Jackson, as we uh, call her on our show, um, listened to Roger Stone's motion for a new trial based on alleged germ misconduct. Um, She kind of gave them what they asked for, and it didn't turn out well. She did an extremely thorough inquiry and hearing um, that wound up creating a very strong appellate record uh, in favor of denying the motion, and that also really made Stone's lawyers look terrible for completely failing to do any sort of jury inquiry at all uh, during the process. So what could wind up from the government's motion is that they win in part; they get dismissal without prejudice, but as part of that, they get a very f- thorough examination of their motives and of the truthfulness of their representations.
1: Yeah, I could see that happening. And of course, that could potentially have consequences for some of those attorneys at the bar and so forth. But I think realistically, it's more the reputation of the DOJ that is at stake there. And it's you know it is going you know it's certainly um taken a hit here. I mean, I've noticed, Ken, we have this recent news about Senator Burr having his uh, cell phone seized and searched, which seems to me like a, that would be a reasonable thing to do in an insider trading investigation. And then there's people saying, oh, this is political retaliation by Trump or Barr or whatever. And really, it, you know, it's, it's hard to call those sorts of Speculation in questions to be unreasonable given what's happened here with Michael Flynn.
2: You're right. Uh, two years ago, um, if you had said, you know, Barr's getting his phone searched, it's clearly a political retaliation, I would have dismissed it as obviously ridiculous. A year ago, I still would have said, I think that's unlikely. Uh, you know, I don't think that's the way it's going to work. Right now, I cannot make that representation to you. I no longer have. Um, Belief that this Justice Department under this leadership would shy away from that sort of overtly political machination.
1: Yeah, I um, I, I don't know what to make of it. I, I don't. I certainly have no trust uh, and don't put any credence in what Barr is doing. I'd like to believe that this is just a straight up uh, prosecution, but who knows? Um, I will say, um, we have gotten a lot of questions from listeners about the. I guess, what's going to happen going forward regarding the amicus. Uh, you know, Patty, do you have a question for us?
0: Yeah, well, it was. In, uh, I think part of uh, your the answer was in part of your conversation because they want to they, they're and they're asking very nicely. They say, please address the amicus brief and what might that might look like. And they say, thank you. ahead of in advance. And they also ask uh, what kind of timeline can be expected if 2000 plus can make arguments, how will this work?
1: So. I'll answer the second part because that's an important one is people can file briefs with the court giving their views. And a lot of people will. I know some are in the works, uh, but they're not going to actually make oral arguments. They're just going to submit their views in writing so the judge can read the ones he wants to, not read the ones he doesn't want to. And he can basically just use them to inform his views. I'm curious, what do you think, Uh, we can expect from from, uh, Judge Gleason acting as the amicus, uh, Ken?
2: Well, I have to think that Judge Sullivan uh, chose Judge Gleason for a reason, Um, knowing what he's like, knowing his background, the types of cases he's done in the past, and his personality. And so because of that, I expect Judge Gleason to ask for the amount of time necessary to do a thorough job. And I really expect him to uh, ultimately... Take apart the brief that DOJ filed and his ultimate um, opinion, his ultimate recommendation may be, you know, because of the separation of powers, you should do this. But I suspect to the extent he thinks that that brief is uh, dishonest and misleading, that it has false recitations of history, that he's going to say so. And that's going to be on the record.
1: Yeah, I'm curious. One thing that I found very bizarre in the in Judge Sullivan's order was his suggestion about criminal uh contempt for perjury. And I'm curious what what exactly do you think he's getting at there? I mean, do you do you really think that he's going to potentially find that uh Michael Flynn committed perjury uh in his courtroom?
2: I mean, I, I guess he could, I don't think he should. Uh you know, for, for the listeners, what likely he's talking about is this. When you enter a guilty plea, uh, you go through a guilty plea discussion with the judge. It's called a colloquy, and at the beginning of it, you're placed under oath and told that if you lie in answer to any of these questions, uh, you could be prosecuted for perjury. Um, It's actually vanishingly rare for that to happen. Uh, and the plea colloquy, depending on the judge, can go on for 15 minutes or 45 minutes while they explain your rights and make sure you understand them. So Flynn, uh, twice under oath, because remember, Judge Sullivan got him basically to reaffirm, uh, said that he had done these things and he was guilty. So what Sullivan seems to be saying is that, well, you know, somewhere there's a lie. Uh, either you lied when you said you were guilty. Um, or you're lying now and the government's lying now saying you're not guilty. I understand where he's going with that. I understand his frustration. I don't think it's a, a fair or just approach for him to take. The truth is, and, and Renato, I bet you know this too, is that defendants frequently lie about something or other in a plea colloquy in order to get a plea. Um, sometimes it's because the government is convinced of, a, of ten facts that they want you to admit, and eight of them are accurate. The other two aren't accurate, but the government's insisting you admit them. They don't make any difference, so you admit them, even though they're not true. Um, sometimes you admit you're guilty when you're not. That does happen because the plea is still a rational way out of the situation. And I think it's an abuse of the court's power and the government's power to say, well, you know, we got you in this position where all you could do is plea, and now we're going to prosecute you if the government decides to dismiss the case and not go forward with that plea. I, I think that's misunderstanding who the bad person is in this scenario. Is Flynn a bad person? Yes, I think he is. But the Department of Justice pulling this, this scam is the real bad person in this particular motion scenario.
1: Yeah, I, you know, it's an interesting thing. I, I agree that with you in part. I mean, I agree that this is not the move I think Judge Sullivan should have made. I don't think he should have put this out there. I actually thought perhaps he was doing it in part to kind of shake up the parties a little, the the parties a little bit, and make the Flynn side realize that you know, hey, we need to uh, be a little less aggressive here because there's still potential downside for us. And to potentially suggest that, hey, you know, I can do, I have this power to do things on my own, which, you know, usually prosecutions are done by the executive branch, you know, and he's recognizing and mentioning, of course, that things that happen in front of him in his courtroom, he can essentially handle on his own, and that's true. Um, but yeah, I, I think for me, the, the, what's problematical about it is, you know, in part, I think, What Flynn would say is, if any of these statements are true or false, that it was based upon his understanding of the facts and law at the time, that he didn't understand that these vague arguments about materiality, and I suppose we should talk a little bit about those, that are being made by the DOJ, and now that he understands that the facts and law are different than he understood them is you know, get told to him by Covington and Burling, he has a different view on the matter. And he wasn't trying to lie before, but he was following his counsel's advice then. And he thought that that was right. And now he thinks it's wrong. And I don't see how that sort of uh, how you could uphold or uh, sustain a conviction along those lines. Yeah, uh, I don't. That's I, sort of my view.
2: I don't see how you lie about whether or not something is material because it's a purely legal question. And as this ridiculous Department of Justice brief shows, uh, you could articulate extremely different views on it. But Renato, I think you might have hit on something there that that the the perjury part may be a bit of a judicial flourish, a bit of bluster, um, which we have both been on the uh, receiving end of uh, before. (laughs) You know, I remember the judge I clerked for, who was a very kindly and decent man, nevertheless, once when someone's uh, very early primitive cell phone went off in his courtroom, said, if that happens again, you're leaving here in leg irons. Now, (laughs) he probably would not actually have made the marshals find leg irons uh, and probably wouldn't have had the person arrested. But, you know, judges say stuff like that sometimes to in effect, uh, emphasize, uh, how upset they are.
1: Yeah. And I've seen judges suggest contempt before just to kind of get people's attention. Okay. And I think, you know, you, uh, Flynn's lawyers, uh, you know, just so everyone understands the context, you know, Flynn's prior law firm, in the matter that got that got him the deal with Mueller's office, that in which he pled guilty, is was Covington and Burling, very respected, a uh, well known large law firm, and you know he now has a lawyer who's sort of part of the MAGA group or whatever, who is more about the press and making headlines and is kind of paid, played fast and loose at times with the facts, uh, in the in the case, and so I think you know part of it is. Uh, you know, potentially the judge trying to signal to her that, hey, there's potential consequences here for your client. You need to take this seriously. This isn't just going to be a press conference for you. Yes,
2: I I think that's very much true.
1: Yeah, I um, You know, I do. um, I do think it's worth just quickly explaining this point about materiality. All the materiality is, is it's a requirement that the false statement uh, be something that's capable of influencing uh, the FBI, not that it actually does. So, in other words, as you were alluding to in the beginning, uh, Ken, that it, it, the FBI could know that you're lying to him at the very moment you're lying to him, but if it was capable of influencing them in some alternative universe, I suspect, where they didn't know that this was, was uh, false, then, then that, that's enough. And essentially, the argument by DOJ is well, this wasn't a proper investigation, so it couldn't have influenced anything because he really wasn't being investigated for anything. Uh, appropriate at that time anyway
2: i have basically. i have literally never even seen or read a defense lawyer argument that aggressive about materiality it is, it is yeah I know. beyond the pale it is absolutely you know the, the language is whether it's a matter in the jurisdiction clearly looking into this is a matter in the jurisdiction it doesn't matter whether they were planning on closing it but hadn't it doesn't matter whether or not it you know eventually played out. It's absolutely clear that by all the case law currently it was material. And I mean the case law is is quite frankly very vexing. I think it's unfair that it's still material, even if they know that you're lying and it doesn't slow them down for a minute. When one of the ways you know how unfair it is is how they treat government lies differently. So Renato, as you know, if uh, the cops or the FBI lie in a search warrant application uh, to search your house or lie in an arrest warrant application or something like that, uh, the defendant, to get relief, has to show that the lie was material. But then all of a sudden it means something different. When the FBI lies in a search warrant application, material has to mean it changed the outcome. So you have to show that but for the lie, they wouldn't have gotten the search warrant. So it is a much more robust of materiality than the type we're talking about here, because, again, we treat um, we treat people, uh, citizens, mere mortals differently than we treat law enforcement.
1: Yeah, I mean, I think it's safe to say I would say I would put it this way, that um, a lot of these bodies of law were developed in cases in which judges really did not want to. Suppress evidence that would result in a case uh, being uh, being dismissed and the defendant released. They felt, you know, often I think there's a situation where the, the a judge potentially in a particular case doesn't want to have uh, a scenario where somebody who's done something wrongful is out on the street, and as a result, uh, you you get I'd say very permissive and aggressive case law that allows the government to do things at times that could be outrageous. I mean, I, I did see, you know, I was talking on Twitter about this, talking about how the government lies to people. And, and Brad Heath from, uh, uh, and I think he said he used to be at USA Today, I think he's at, at Bloomberg or AP or something now, mentioned, you know, cases in which the DEA had hired prostitutes to lure people to buy drugs. I mean, and that was considered not problematic for those prosecutions. So there's definitely a lot of, a lot of conduct that most people would think is pretty unfair, um, that is permitted by judges. And I think that the, my gut is that the, the, the what's animating that is judges not wanting to, to quote, set somebody free.
2: To me, the disturbing thing here is that, um, this is causing us to talk about some fundamental things about the fairness of the system and the appropriateness of law enforcement tactics. Um, and, uh, because of that, uh, I would like those discussions to go on. I would like them to yield something, but I think they've been completely uh, cynically um, taken over, not for the actual result of a change to the system, but just to justify this one particular corrupt act. Uh, and I don't think there's any chance Uh, any chance that any of these systemic problems we're talking about are going to be changed as a result of this for other people who aren't buddies with the person in power
1: yeah i um, you know i have to say um for me i mean one of the things that's just unbelievable I, i have trouble believing is how this is morphed into on the right, Obama Gates, and there's some sort of grand conspiracy in which this is turned into, you know, Flynn was, quote, framed. I don't know how they've gotten to that. Here's a guy who's admitted under oath multiple times that he's guilty. Uh, and that uh, somehow President Obama set everyone up. I don't, I don't even understand what the allegation means.
2: I mean, if I ask my kid if they ate the last of the cookie dough, I know they're going to lie. That doesn't mean I framed them. <laughs> Uh it's not what it means. Um you can you can not admire the tactics and not think that a lie like that should result in a federal felony and still recognize it as a lie from somebody who maybe should not have that position of power. Um I, I just think though we we are not dwelling in the same universes factually. Uh we have two completely different set of ideas about uh what's happening and the significance of it. And it's very rare for any of our insights about the way this system actually works to penetrate uh, the brain of um, advocates on either side.
1: You know, um, I, I yeah, I agree. I mean, I have to say that, you know, the narrative here just is – it's hard for me to follow. I I don't even really understand what the allegations are. Uh I've been trying to follow I, I actually follow a lot of right wingers on Twitter to try to see what their their thoughts are on this and it's just hard for me to even follow, but I think it seems to be part of a strategy to create their their the 2020 version of Hillary's emails. So we've got some sort of you know trumped up scandal where it's I don't know, it sounds bad uh, as much as I can say because I actually will say this Ken. I think it's also reasonable to ask questions about when and why campaigns are surveilled. In other words, we don't we want to be thoughtful and watch how governments are surveilling campaigns. But here, the conclusions and the rhetoric and all of it just it does, is so outside of reality and unrelated to reality that none of these very legitimate questions are really being asked. Absolutely. So we have a couple uh, questions from our listeners. What, what's the, do you have you have uh, another one companion? Oh,
0: absolutely. I mean, this lit up your Twitter feed. <laughs> no time. <Thank> you. <laughs> I think you're both aware of how interested people are in this conversation. Uh, one is uh, could the next administration charge Flynn for any of the criminal acts he acknowledged in his plea deal? Um, for example, the statute of limitations has not expired. They want to know about that. Uh, The language of the plea deal and the actions of DOJ in their motion do not preclude charging withdrawn with or without prejudice.
2: So it's a little bit tricky. Um, The plea agreement says that in exchange for him pleading, uh, they will not prosecute him for the things covered in the statement of facts that's attached. The Statement of Facts talk about the lies. They do not go into in detail all the other violations that may not be out there. So I would expect if a future administration tried to prosecute him, he would take a shot. I would take a shot, if I were his lawyer, at arguing that that uh, the vagueness of the language and that since since the Statement of Facts referred to the Farah Varela, vir- vir- referred to the FARA violations, that they are precluded uh, from being uh, prosecuted, and that the promises in the plea agreement are still good because it was the Department of Justice that moved to dismiss. You know, even if he moved to withdraw his plea, he hadn't successfully done so. I think it would just be a mess. My my sense is that ultimately he would not prevail in those arguments, and that they would be able to prosecute him uh, for pretty much whatever they wanted. Uh, but uh, it would be very contentious, and it would be an appellate issue.
1: Yeah. And, and and on the appellate process, I think we had a question on on that as well. Oh,
0: absolutely. Uh, is there any way with appeals and process that this drags on post election
2: um, i I think that's up to Judge Sullivan. Uh, Judge Sullivan gets to decide when to hold hearings. Um, he could hold a series of them. Uh, how long is he going to give? his uh, amicus judge to uh, put in something? Is he going to have witnesses? Is he going to have briefing? And then uh, is he gonna, how long is he going to take to decide? Uh, I, I don't think it would, he would need to break a sweat to drag it out that long if that's what he wants to do.
1: Do you think, uh, Ken, you know, so there's something called a writ of mandamus. Uh, do you think that there's a chance that DOJ is going to try to use that tool to get a court of appeals to intervene?
2: That would be super aggressive and you'd have to be extremely confident in the Court of Appeals to do that. And I don't think they have that level of confidence in that court uh, because if he were just refusing to do it outright, that would be one thing. But if he's put a process in place and he's saying in order to evaluate this and the claims in it, I want to go through this process, I think it's really hard for them to get away with that argument.
1: Yeah, I think that's right. I think that what's very helpful for Judge Sullivan here is he's basically just saying, "I want more information. I want to hear people's views," and it's just hard to see the other side of that. Like, you know, I mean, what is the downside, really? I mean, you know, people are making it sound like this is some sort of. You know, I've, I've seen these, these suggestions that from the right that this is some sort of deep state interference or whatever. I don't really understand what's interfering about just making legal arguments that the judge can disregard if he wants to. I mean, I don't, I mean, w- what's the harm with him having more information? So I, I, it's hard for me to see appellate judges uh, siding against Judge Sullivan on that.
2: Well, to be fair, there are some fairly pro-Trump uh, appellate judges, but uh, I'm pretty confident that it, the at least an en banc panel would put up with it.
1: I think that that's right. Well, Ken, thank you so much for joining us. Uh, This has been fantastic. Now, obviously, people can follow you on Twitter at at Popat, but of course, you have your own podcast, which I have appeared on uh, multiple times. I find very informative. Can you tell us uh, a little bit about your podcast and where people can listen to that?
2: Well, thank you, Renato. I have two, actually. I have a weekly podcast with uh, Josh Barrow, who's the host of Left, Right and Center. Uh, It's called All the President's Lawyers. It's on KCRW. And uh, every Wednesday, uh, we talk about uh, the president's latest legal machinations and people in the outer orbit of Trump lawyers like Michael Avenatti. Um, My other podcast is called Make No Law. And it's about the history and background of famous First Amendment cases. And it's on legal Talk Network.
1: That's fantastic. I assume you can listen to both of those podcasts wherever uh, on your favorite podcast app.
2: Anywhere you can find them, yes.
1: Fantastic. Well, thanks again, Ken. I learned uh, from you, and I really always enjoy your perspective. Thank you so much. Thank Thank you. you, Renato. Take care. Thank you for joining us for this episode of On Topic. Please subscribe to this podcast. Go to your app and review the podcast and join us for our next episode. I'm Renato Mariotti. Until next time, let's stay on topic.